It's my great pleasure to introduce to you now Commissioner Christopher Giancarlo. Chris took the helm of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in mid-2014 after a long and distinguished career as a lawyer specializing in financial services. He's also, like me, a proud Italian-American. And uh, as I'm sure many of you know, Italians were responsible for two of the most significant and enduring financial innovations of all time. I mean double-entry bookkeeping and the Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so the question is, in addressing blockchain technology, which of these two precedents ought regulators to be keeping most in mind? I'm sure that uh, uh, Chris will have an answer. Uh, and Chris's own Twitter handle, by the way, is Giancarlo CFTC. So you might include the, that on your tweets. Ladies and gentlemen, Commissioner Chris Giancarlo. George, thank you for that warm introduction. All I can say is molte grazie. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and thank you for that warm welcome. Before I begin, let me say that my remarks reflect my own views and do not necessarily constitute the views of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, my fellow commissioners, or the CFTC staff. And as I say, it is a pleasure to be with you today at the Cato Institute for this important discussion of the policy implications of cryptocurrencies. Today's topic is certainly one of the more fascinating ones arising from the current revolution in exponential digital technologies they are seeing today in global financial markets. But notwithstanding that broad discussion, my remarks this morning will not be directed specifically to cryptocurrencies. Rather, I want to focus on a key foundational technology that underlies the cryptocurrency Bitcoin. And that is the technology of distributed ledgers, often referred to as blockchain. It's an emerging technology that I believe may have enormous implications for the capital and hedging markets overseen by the CFTC and other national and international regulators. To begin this morning, though, I want to take you back for a moment to September 2008. That was a perilous time in global financial markets. An enormous U.S. housing bubble had burst, triggering a cascading global credit crisis. And concern was rife in world financial centers and government capitals about imminent, imminent investment and commercial bank failure. I was on Wall Street then, serving as a senior executive of one of the world's largest trading platforms for credit default swaps, then the epicenter of systemic global risk. And I can tell you that panic was in the air and tension was enormous on our broken floor where we were trying to maintain orderly markets. I remember a call from a US bank regulator asking about CDS trading exposure of several major institutions, including Lehman Brothers. In fact, trading conditions were deteriorating by the hour. And it was clear to me from that phone call that the regulator had little means, short of calling around to brokerage firms, to read all the danger signals that the credit default swap market was signaling. Now, let's fast forward to today, seven and a half years after the financial crisis. And guess what? 
global regulators still do not have full visibility in the swap, into the swaps trading portfolios of major financial institutions. Now, in all candor, it's not for lack of hard work and effort. In 2001, the CFTC first required the reporting of swaps transactions to regulators and to centralized data repositories. The agency has been pursuing it ever since. And yet CFTC data still does not provide a complete picture of global swaps trading. In part, it's because global regulators have not harmonized reporting protocols and data fields across international jurisdictions. And it's also because of the practical impossibility of a single national regulator collecting sufficient quality data for both cleared and uncleared swaps to recreate a real-time ledger of the highly complex global swaps trading portfolios of all market participants. Of the many mandates to emerge from the financial crisis, visibility into counterparty credit risk was perhaps the most pressing. And the failure to accomplish it today is certainly, to my mind, the most disappointing. Fortunately, the emergent science of distributed ledger technology, what I will call DLT or blockchain, may address this crucial need. And it's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The Bank of England recently dubbed DLT the first attempt at an internet of finance. It has the potential to link networks of legal record keeping the same way that the internet connects networks of data and information. Increasing settlement efficiency and speed, reducing transaction costs, and broadening market access. The potential applications of DLT are being widely imagined and explored. They promise benefits to market participants, consumers, and regulators alike. For example, DLT could allow for the confirmation and ownership transfer of virtually anything. Think of baseball game tickets and magazine subscriptions, auto repair warranties, airline loyalty rewards, and even apartment leases. It could empower better and more verifiable voting systems, whether for proxies for corporate shareholders, customer satisfaction surveys, and even voting for political candidates. For financial markets, DLT is likely to have a broad impact on payment systems, banking transactions, security settlement, title recording, cybersecurity, and trade reporting and analysis. It may make possible new smart securities and derivatives that can value themselves in real time, report themselves to data repositories and, and regulators, automatically calculate and perform margin payments, and even terminate themselves in the event of a counterparty default. However, as I noted last December at a lecture at Harvard Law School, this transformation in the markets and the market infrastructure will not come without consequences, including an enormously disruptive impact on the human capital that supports the record-keeping and transaction processing of contemporary financial markets. A recent report by Citigroup forecasts that retail banking automation, including by blockchain, could spur 
a 30% decline over the next decade in employment across US and European banking sectors. That would be the equivalent of eliminating nearly 2 million jobs. Still, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, the potential benefits of DLT are enormous for both financial services firms and the regulators who oversee them. For market participants, DLT may help manage the huge operational, transactional, and capital complexity brought about by the legion of disparate mandates, regulations, and capital requirements promulgated by regulators here and abroad. In fact, one study estimates that DLT could eventually allow financial institutions to save each year as much as $20 billion in infrastructure and operational costs. Another study reportedly estimates that DLT could cut trading settlement costs by a third, or $16 billion a year, and cut capital requirements by $120 billion a year. Now, for regulators, the potential of Bitcoin and, I'm sorry, of blockchain is equally attractive. This past February, the U.S. Government Accountability Office issued an assessment that U.S. regulation of financial markets has not meaningfully improved since the GAO's issuance of a comprehensive study more than seven years ago. That 2009 study concluded that the U.S. financial regulatory system is generally ill-suited to meet this country's needs in the 21st century because of its high level of complexity and overlap. 2016 report found that the U.S. financial regulatory framework leads to inconsistencies, including in the oversight of different regulators of securities and derivative markets and banking and depository institutions. Against these inconsistency, inconsistencies, DLT may allow government overseers to transcend the fragmented U.S. regulatory structure by providing reference to a single verified record of all financial transactions across regulated markets. In the middle of the financial crisis in 2008, prudential regulators had to call around to brokerage firms like mine searching for market confirmation of the pending collapse of Lehman Brothers. What a difference it would have made if regulators then had access to a golden record of real-time ledgers of Lehman Brothers and all of its regulated trading partners. Had that been available, perhaps along with some modern cognitive computing capability, regulators may have been able to recognize anomalies in market-wide trade activity and diverging counterparty exposures pointing to imminent risk of failure. It would certainly have allowed for far prompter, better informed, and more calibrated regulatory intervention instead of the disorganized response that unfortunately ensued. Moreover, had Lehman Brothers still failed, records powered by DLT and held by trading counterparties and available to regulators would have accurately shown Lehman's open positions across asset classes. Imagine if instead of requiring countless legal actions spanning eight years, we could have known all of Lehman's exposures within minutes of its bankruptcy filing. Accelerated settlement of open positions and accounts would have taken weeks, not years. 
It's therefore not surprising that DLT has sparked an incredible amount of interest within the financial industry by regulators and regulatees alike. Not a week goes by without several news articles, opinions, and reports discussing the potential benefits and challenges of the technology. Billions of dollars are being invested in dozens of new ventures and innovations. Just last week, seven firms announced the successful use of a shared DLT network to record a month's worth of trades in the multi-trillion dollar market for single name credit default swaps. The proof of concept exercise was organized by the Depository Trust and Clearing Corp and included Bank of America, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, Citigroup, financial service provider market, and blockchain technology developer Axioni. The exercise included smart contracts that did their own calculations, and it provided access for regulatory oversight. I believe this exercise proves that there is merit to the potential of distributed ledger technology. Other similarly promising projects are underway. Last week, DTCC said that it had started working with digital asset holdings to determine whether short-term lending arrangements between dealers, known as repos, could be settled using blockchain. So DLT development is clearly moving rapidly, certainly faster than underlying legal and regulatory frameworks. Yet investment in DLT faces the danger that when regulation does come, and it will, it will come from a dozen different directions with different restrictions, stifling crucial technology development before it has a chance to reach full fruition. But fortunately, there is a good model for the healthy development of DLT. And it's the first do-no-harm approach that was adopted for the early internet. Two decades ago, as the internet was entering a phase of rapid growth and expansion, a Republican Congress and the Clinton administration established two foundational principles. First, the internet was to progress through human social interaction, voluntary contractual relations, and free markets. And second, governments and regulators were not to harm the internet's continuing evolution. This simple two-step approach is well recognized as the enlightened regulatory underpinning of the internet that brought about such profound changes in human society over the past two decades. During the almost 20 years of do-no-harm regulation, a massive amount of investment has been made in the internet's infrastructure. It yielded a rapid expansion in access that supported swift deployment and mass adoption of internet-based technologies. Internet-based innovations have revolutionized nearly every aspect of human life, from telecommunications to commerce, transportation, and research and development. This robust internet economy has created jobs, increased productivity, and fostered innovation and consumer choice. Do no harm was unquestionably the right approach to development of the internet. Similarly, do no harm is the right approach for distributed ledger technology and the blockchain. I recently called on the CFTC and its domestic and overseas counterparts to join an international consensus to avoid impeding essential DLT innovation 
by protracted rule uncertainty or uncoordinated regulatory action. I believe regulators and policymakers have a choice. We can either follow a trail that burdens the industry with multiple onerous regulatory schemes, or we can pursue a path where we come together and set forth uniform principles to encourage DLT investment and innovation. I favor the latter approach. I believe that innovators and investors should not have to seek government's permission, only its forbearance, to develop distributed ledger technology. Government must foster a regulatory environment conducive to the technological innovation needed to address the increased operational complexity and capital consumption of modern financial markets. Once again, the private sector must lead. Regulators must avoid impeding innovation and investment. Instead, they must provide a predictable, consistent, and straightforward legal foundation. Protracted regulatory uncertainty or an uncoordinated regulatory approach must be avoided, as should rigid application of existing rules designed for a bygone technological error. As they did with the internet, US and foreign regulators must coordinate their work to create a principles-based approach for DLT oversight. Noteworthy is the recent white paper of the Office of Controller of the Currency, entitled Supporting Responsible Innovation in the, Financial, in the Federal Banking System. The OCC offers its support for innovation in the financial services industry that it views as consistent with safety and soundness compliant with applicable laws and regulations, and protective of customers' rights. It emphasizes the need to support responsible innovation and business cultures receptive to responsible innovation. Now, the Swiss-based Financial Stability Board, set up in 2009 after the G20 London Summit, has recently turned its attention to financial technology innovations, including DLT. I was encouraged to read that FSB Chairman Mark Carney recognizes that regulation should not stifle emerging innovation. I similarly understand that the International Organization of Securities Commissioners, known as IOSCO, is working on international policies to drive innovation without undermining confidence in markets. IOSCO Chairman Greg Medcraft has said that issues around DLT must be dealt with at an international and multilateral level, not by individual countries. I agree. The FSB and IOSCO have important roles to play in coordinating DLT regulation. These organizations should put forth a simple set of governing principles, flexible enough to accommodate the issues and concerns of different national regulators. Some national market regulators have already openly acknowledged the need for flexible oversight. Masamichi Kono, Vice Minister for International Affairs at the Japan Financial Services Agency, stated that regulators must take a pragmatic and flexible approach to regulation of new technologies so not as to stifle innovation. Similarly, the UK's Financial Conduct Authority has committed to regulatory forbearance on DLT development for the foreseeable future in an effort to give regulators space to develop and improve the technology. And the FSA is even going one step further 
I'm sorry, the FCA is going one step further and engaging in discussions with the industry to determine whether DLT could meet the FCA's own technology needs. Now, I've got no doubt that the FCA's intention to give DL, uh, uh, DLT innovators space to innovate will be good for DLT research and development. But I also suspect that it'll be very good for London's burgeoning fintech industry and job creation in the United Kingdom. Yesterday in London, a senior representative of Her Majesty's Treasury announced that it will establish an industry-led panel to develop an overarching strategy for the British fintech industry. She went on to say, quote, the UK government wants to ensure that the UK continues to be the best place in the world to be a fintech company. It is unfortunate that we do not hear similarly strong voices on this side of the Atlantic. U.S. lawmakers concerned about the rapid loss of employment in the U.S. financial service industry, especially in the New York City area where job losses are pronounced, should similarly look to provide space to DLT innovation and entrepreneurship and the well-paying jobs that will surely follow. American global leadership in technology innovation and innovation of the internet was built hand in hand with regulators' enlightened do no harm approach. The same opportunity for technology leadership is present today if we only have the good sense to seize it. In drawing to a close, I note that when the internet developed in the mid-1990s, none of us could have imagined its capabilities that we take for granted today. Fortunately, policymakers had the foresight to create a do-no-harm regulatory environment that served as a catalyst rather than a choke point for innovation. Thanks to their forethought and restraint, internet-based applications have revolutionized nearly every aspect of human life, created millions of jobs, and increased productivity and customer choice. Policymakers should today show that same forethought and restraint. Today, I repeat my call from my agency, the CFTC, and other U.S. and overseas policymakers and regulatory counterparts to repeat that broad-minded approach. I look forward to working with my fellow CFTC commissioners, U.S. lawmakers, and other financial service regulators here and abroad to develop a do-no-harm framework from which to launch a new era of innovation in distributed ledger technology for the good of our markets, for the jobs they support, and the people they serve. Thank you very much. George, I have time for one or two questions, if, if there are any questions from members of the audience. Yes, please. Is there a microphone? I see a question in the... Just shout out, please. Well, I think we should start by seeing what we can see. So it's, it's, it's providing transparency uh, across asset classes, across markets, where that opportunity lies. I can tell you, right now, we don't have that. And the piece we see at the CFTC is only a piece of the broader market. Um, when, when the decision was made in Dodd-Frank to place the 
single-name credit default swap market under the SEC and the credit indice market on the CFTC. Uh, the effect of that was to separate two markets that work um, sim symbiotically with each other in the real marketplace and to separate that under, those, under two different regulators. So we now have that separate regulation. We have separate perspectives. And we see separate marketplaces that are interacting with each other, but we're not seeing the interactions. So the benefit of DL techno DLT technology is to provide a comprehensive market view so that regulators can then make recommendations to Congress and other policymakers about what to do about the interlocking relationships. But before we can even get to the policy concerns, we need to first have that uh, comprehensive, consistent view, which we don't have today. And I, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The, at the heart of the financial crisis, perhaps the most critical element was the lack of visibility into the counterparty credit exposure of one major financial institution to another. Before we even got to the point of requiring bilateral clear transactions to move to a clearinghouse, before we even got to the point of requiring that intermediaries be registered with the CFTC or the SEC, before we even got to the point of registering swap stealers, probably the most glaring omission that needed to be addressed was that lack of visibility. And here we are in 2016, and we still don't have it. My name's John Palmasano with uh, Etrios Commodities. Thank you for mentioning smart contracts, which perhaps people speak about later in the revolutionary. How can you imagine that smart contracts within the fi financial community, but also in the commodity area, like electricity, agricultural products, what have you, might be regulated? Well, I think the first step is to... Um, to, to update the way we think about contracts. At heart, what a contract is, is an algorithm. It's a set of instructions. Uh, it's a set of, um, with, with certain inputs, the contract provides certain responses. Just as we've digitized so many elements of our analog world, a smart contract is the digitization uh, the, the, the reducing a contract to an algorithm. Now, we're, we're a decade or more aware from reaching that point, but in our future is the point where contractual relations we, we enter into will be reduced to an algorithm that will be able to perform its process on its own electronically interacting with other contracts with minimal to, at some point, no human interaction. That is one of the, from a policy point of view, that presents some enormous policy challenges. But again, before we even get there, we have to, in a sense, um, recast our thinking about contract law into something more akin to the software world that we've all grown accustomed, or all growing accustomed to, and the digital world that is still transforming ourselves before our very eyes. I'll just share with you an anecdote. One of the great pleasures I've had joining the CFTC, I've spent all my life in New York and London working in the financial service industry. The core part of the CFTC's mandate is agriculture futures commodities. And I've made it my mission to uh, 
go to farming communities in America and learn about their business. Well, the digital revolution that's taking place in everything we do is happening in farming as well. And I got to ride in a, in a John Deere tractor alongside a farmer and learn that he's no longer steering the tractor. That's all being done by GPS system. What he's reading is a whole series of monitors that are measuring soil content, um, uh, acidity in the soil, uh, water uh, uh, um, uh, penetration into the soil, and other factors. So the, the computer can decide how deep into the soil to lay the seed so to get the best result at harvest time. And while that's happening, the tractor is talking to a satellite and reporting all that data into John Deere or International Harvester, other satellites. Tractor companies are becoming data companies. They're going to be able to provide a database for farmers to use that is tremendous. And that tractor that's operating while the farmer's doing all these calculations is plowing to the square inch of the, the farm to produce the greatest amount of, uh, of yield from the farm. So it's amazing. You know, digitization is affecting everything we do. And is going to have, as we go into this next phase that we're seeing now with things like the blockchain are going to radically transform contract law and the financial service industry, uh, it will be, um, it will evolve as quickly today as the internet did over the past 20 years. It's an exciting future, but one with a great deal of policy challenges. I'll take a last question if I could. Hello. Um, my name is Joshua Romanoff. I'm here personally. Um, and I don't know much about cryptocurrency, and this might be an obvious question. What role or what part um, in the future or today does the Federal Reserve play with cryptocurrency? It might be obvious. Yeah, but. So, well, well, thank you for that. I, I'm actually going to decline uh, responding to that. I, I centered my remarks on some of the foundational technology. You've got some of the best experts here today, and I think on George's panel coming up, that very question is going to be addressed. So I'm going to leave it to that panel to speak to. It's also outside the... The, the realm of the CFTC, uh, so I'll let the, the central bankers and others speak to that. It's a great question. You're, gonna, you're at the right place to get some answers to it today, so thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for the pleasure of being here today. Bye.